Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 286. Hey, welcome back. I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. I'm so glad you're here. This week, I have Travis Watts as a guest on the podcast. Travis is a full-time passive investor, and we'll dig into exactly what that means. Travis has been investing in real estate since 2009 in multifamily, single-family, and vacation rentals. Travis is the Director of Investor Relations at Ashcroft Capital. He has invested in over 27 passive syndications between 14 different firms. Travis now dedicates his time to educating others in the world of investing and has made it his mission to share passive investment strategies in order to help others achieve and maintain wealth in real estate. So with that, let's jump right into it. All right, today I welcome on the show my good buddy, Travis Watts. Travis, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Jacob. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Well, Travis, you are a full-time passive investor. Before we get into who you are, your background, I've got to ask, what does that mean? Because it sounds like you're in (laughs) essence full-time retired, which is kind of an oxymoron, kind of counterintuitive. So what does that mean to be a full-time passive investor? Yeah, that's a great question. It is kind of funny. Basically, long story short, I focus you know, 90% of my time on just finding investments, vetting out sponsors, finding deals to put money into on a full-time basis. So that's my primary source of time commitment and income. That's what it is. Yeah, awesome. We'll dive into all that. It's really exciting stuff. But first, I want to talk about your journey and how you got to be a full-time passive investor. Tell us about who you are, your background, your journey into the real estate world, all that good stuff. Cool. Yeah. So I got started in real estate in 2009. I got started probably the way a lot of people get started in real estate. I just bought a single family house. Didn't know what else to buy. Didn't know there was other options really. So my own backyard, I was out in Colorado. I had known for several years just through reading books like Robert Kiyosaki's books, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Rich Dad Prophecy, Cashflow Quadrant. If any of your listeners have read his material, and I'm sure you have, it's very like philosophical. It's it's a very high level. It's just, you know, passive income and infinite returns and blah, blah, blah. And like, <laughs> you, you don't really know what the hell to do. You just know, well, that sounds exciting. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I was, right? I was just excited. Knew I wanted to get into real estate just based off not just those books, but my dad and stepmom had done some single family as well. And so I just kind of took the traditional path, started doing house hacking, renting out spare bedrooms, got into fix and flips, later got into vacation rentals. I did a lot of active, hands-on, single family. 
until the point that I realized I was building myself a job that I didn't want that was way too active. And I guess I should point out too, I was working in the oil field. So I was doing consistent 14 hour days, 98 hours per week. And a lot of times I was away from home. So I'm trying to do all that single family on the side of doing that job. And it just, it wasn't working. <laughs> you know, I didn't see how I was going to scale that model up. And I, I kind of just got in over my head, I guess, simple, simply put. And so I went back to the drawing board to figure out a better strategy, how I could actually be passive in my investing approach while staying in real estate, because I love real estate and I firmly believe in it in all market cycles. So I found real estate syndications, passively investing in other people's deals, multifamily apartment buildings, basically. And so that's about 80% of what I do today as investments go. Yeah, that's great. So as you're a working professional, kind of early in your career, you're working 98-hour work weeks. Just, I'm sure that's really difficult. Was your goal to replace your income? Was it to quit that job? Was it to go out and get a job that you more enjoyed? What was your goal to get started investing in real estate? Yeah. So it's kind of funny. When I first got started in real estate, I really didn't have any goals defined. I really didn't have a long-term plan laid out. I was just, you know, real estate's good. I'm excited and I want money. <laughs> you know, like there those were my three things, you know. And for anyone who's worked, you know, in negative 20 degree weather, you know, swinging a sledgehammer, I think that you probably don't want to hold on to that job, you know, for 50 years. <laughs> and uh, I, I got there very quickly. And so, yeah, that kind of became my first goal is like, I want to get out of this job. You know, it's a lot of work. I hate it. I'm away from home. It's miserable. And so, yeah, so the goal kind of ended up being cash flow, passive income, enough so to replace my active income. That was the first goal I set out to achieve. Some people refer to that as FI or financial independence. Yeah, sure. So there's this point where in that process of, you know, you're working your day job, you're going out buying that first property and that next one, it, for a while, you are absolutely increasing your workload, right? Because you're managing that very first property and that second one, you start to grow your portfolio and it's becoming like a thing over here on the side where you're having to manage, mm -hmm. taking a lot more time. But then at some point, it kind of turns where you're able to maybe outsource that or make it your full-time career like you eventually did. So talk about that transition period and how you manage that phase. Yeah, I think it's important for everyone to realize in the single family space that while it is possible to one day maybe have 50 or 100 single family homes, people do it, it is possible. But even outsourcing as you speak to and having property management companies oversee everything for you, there is still a lot of active that gets put on your shoulders, right? I mean, yeah. a property manager can't save the day in every way. I mean, if you're you know, hot water tank explodes or whatever, like you're still responsible. You know, you still got to make a call. What do you want to do? You know, buy a new one, buy a used one, get it repaired. What are you doing? And, right. you know, the, the vacancies are real and the issues are real and, you know, the lease ups are real. And, you know, you still got to save all your receipts and build your own team of CPAs and the whole deal. And <laughs> so you can say that that's passive, but I don't believe it is. And even when I turned over to property management after X amount of single family homes that I had, I still didn't see that as being passive income. And I didn't see myself scaling up that high. So I knew I had to make a big change or just give it up altogether, go into the stock market or do something different. Yeah, sure. So Travis, let's talk about that very first investment that you did. What did that look like? What was it? At what point in your career did you buy that? 
So <laughs> kind of like a weird hybrid. So my first home that I actually bought ended up being my first investment property. Yeah, so okay. it was a uh, it was a condo, it was a 2-1, uh, 1980s built, you know, kind of a B-class asset, uh, 95,000. It had just sold two years prior. You got to remember that was like the big meltdown, right? So it had sold a couple of years prior for like 168. So it's a good deal, right? I mean, on paper, it seemed like a good deal. So I moved in, the government gave out like an $8,000 tax credit that year for first time home buyers. So that certainly helped. Just went with a conventional loan, 20% down. I fully furnished it just like totally on the cheap, just through like, you know, Craigslist garage sales, used, <laughs> sure. used stuff, you know. And I ended up renting out that spare bedroom fully furnished to, it was somewhat near a campus, college campus. So I got a student roommate paying me basically more or less my mortgage payment. It was like 600 a month rent and my mortgage was like 681 a month or something. So that was like the first big light bulb. That was like the boom. I just figured out how to house hack, how to live basically for free. And from there that just, you know, that really put the fuel in the tank. Uh, yeah. to get rolling. I later ended up making that a full-time rental and I kept it for many years. So. Yeah, sure. So did you just save up you know, from your day job to make that 20% down payment? What did that look like for you? Because that's often you know, a lot of people's biggest hurdles, you know, saving up for that down payment to get that first investment property. Any tips yep. or tricks there? Yeah. So it was kind of, it was a mixture of a few things. One, I'd been working since I think 15, right? Started with just, you know, traditional stuff, paper route, blah, 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 did landscaping, mowed yards, all that stuff. And my parents, thank God, they were extremely frugal. They still are today, but they were like extreme <laughs> frugal back then. So, you know, I learned a lot about like save your money, right? And like use coupons and buy off brand. And if you don't need it, you don't need it, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I was, I've always been an avid saver, an avid budgeter. And so, you know, you think 15 to 20, so five years of that, saving Christmas money, birthday money, everything I was, you know, working for. In addition to my parents had saved what they could for me to go to college, just like a small fund they had in a brokerage account. I ended up not using that on college because I didn't see that as being a good return on investment for me. And so, you know, I kind of coupled that with my savings and, you know, there's my down payment and I got the 8,000 back from the government tax credit. So, Man, such wise for, you know, that 15, 20 year old Travis to be saving that money for the future house, right? So yeah, if I could go back and tell myself to do that, I certainly would. Now you'd, you'd mentioned a term that I want to touch on and that's FIRE, financial independence, retire early. There's so yeah. many ways to definitely do that. There's lean FIRE, fat FIRE. Yep. I feel, let me get your opinion on this. So like, you know, lean FIRE is, you know, you're really budgeting, you know, living way below your means so that you can save up and, you know, eventually retire early, right? Fat yeah. fires, the same concept, but you're doing it, you know, I would say not so conservatively, right? So what's your approach mm -hmm. there? Yeah, I mean, for those familiar with the fire movement, I side more with the fat fire side. I mean, my wife and I still love kind of the finer things in life, right? But at the same time, putting that in perspective, and being a realist about it, you know, for example, you know, We've driven nice cars, you know, we've had Porsches and, you know, Lexus, Range Rover, but we've never paid more than $12,000 for a car. Really? You know? So it's kind of the best of both worlds. Like if you want to drive those cars, you can certainly do it. But buy a used one, obviously, buy it at a discount, right? And just be prepared for <laughs> the unexpected, you know, on a car like that. So yeah, it's basically, you're not being so-called 
like a minimalist financially, right? Where you just got like one fork and one spoon and one knife, you know, <laughs> and, you're, and you're eating ramen noodles for eight years. Like that's more like extreme lean fire. I just don't, it's not quality of life for me. I lived that way in college. It was terrible. Yeah, so. sure. <laughs> I completely agree with that because in real estate investing, you kind of get into it because you've, many people have this abundance mindset, right? There's a plethora of capital. There's a plethora of deals. So when you combine that philosophy with like this lean fire, it seems that they don't really jive up, right? So you're out there, you know, living an abundance life on one aspect, but, you know, eating ramen noodles with one fork and one knife, like you say on the other, right? So yeah, it's interesting to see your perspective there. Yeah, yeah. But huge advocate for, you know, and the way I look at it, so fire, you know, the whole retire early, that's where all the controversy comes in, right? Everyone's got something to say about how you can't retire early or why would you want to. So I focus on FI, financial independence, right? Everyone can resonate with that. It's when you have enough passive income to exceed your living expenses, period. That can happen in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. But, you know, that's just really saying that's the true path to what it takes to be able to retire. Not that you're going to, you know, move into a retirement home at 30 and go, you know, <laughs> play golf for 50 years. But, you know, FI is, you know, it's something I've achieved and it's something that I'm a huge advocate for helping others achieve. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's talk about your path to achieving financial independence. So you buy that condo. Mm -hmm. What did the next investment look like? And then from there and further. Yeah, I kind of did this interesting strategy. I wasn't going by anybody's formula or guide or anything. I was just trying to figure this stuff out. But I would essentially try to buy a bank owned home or foreclosure or just something at a discount I could get my hands on that was a two or three or four bedroom. I would move in. I would house hack the other rooms. I was single, right? No wife, no kids at that time. And, you know, basically I was living for free as the market was appreciating. This was out in Colorado. It's a great time to be in that market. And, uh, you know, every time, and then I was working an oil field job, which is a six figure income. And I was living on, you know, like nothing, like 25K a year or something. So, you know, I'm pocketing all the difference and I'm putting that into real estate. So every time I would save up 20, 30 grand, whatever it was, I'd buy another property. Yeah. You know, and I'd kind of rinse and repeat and I'd buy another property. And then the one I was in previously, I would make that a full-time rental instead of me living in it and house hacking it. So that was kind of my process for many years until I kind of did away with single family. And, it, and that was all about crunching numbers. I just got like an Excel sheet or a notepad. I can't even remember. And I just like conservatively, I was like, if I sold everything and I mean everything, my own house and everything I own, what would that equal? And then if I put that into syndications, passive investments, what would that cash flow equal conservatively? When I figured that out that, well, I could leave my oil field job, boom, I did. <laughs> yeah, such an aha moment there, huh? Yeah, it was, I mean, it, it, it's simple on the surface. It's like just run the numbers and figure it out. But it took me years and years and years and years to finally get to that point of doing that. And years and years of doing the right thing too, right? This was a slow process. It wasn't yeah. like you picked up rich yeah. dad, poor dad, two years later <laughs> retired, right? <laughs> no, no, it's certainly, it takes patience and I'm not the best at it. I just like to be active. I just like to, you know, be doing something constantly. And I wish I would have just sat back a bit, reflected a bit more, laid out some goals, <laughs> picked up a few extra books, right? Taking those first two years to more educate instead of just do, because I ended up, doing a lot of deals that wasted a lot of time and didn't make a lot of money. So Yeah, sure. So when you made the transition to multifamily, was it the asset class that drove that decision? Was it the model of being able to be passive? What was the driving factor there? 
first and foremost, it had to do everything with being passive. It had everything to do with I'm so burnt out and fed up with all the stuff I'm responsible for and running around like a chicken with his head cut off, you know? So I didn't want that. I wanted to be just, you know, here's the check. I'm done. Send me the money. You know, (laughs) that concept was just like, it lured me in. And I was a bit skeptical. I'll be honest, like syndications, it was a new concept for me. And I just thought I'm looking at some of these performas and projections and I'm thinking, that just seems too good to be true. Like some of these numbers are more than I'm making in my single family homes, you know? I didn't see how that would be possible. But then I realized you get with the right team, with the right track record, right? Who's done this over and over and over again. And you can leverage all their connections, right? And they're far better at doing this stuff than I am. And so that was kind of another aha moment is it's like, man, I'm going to leverage these people's, you know, broker networks and CPA networks and contractor networks and all this stuff. And then just piggyback on their success right? Just partner up with someone that really knows what they're doing. Unlike me, who's just figuring it out. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) And at at some point, you know, no one is born knowing what a syndication is. And it usually takes quite a while to figure out this world of syndications. It's because, you know, we're not taught at an early age. So, hey, you know, grow up, get a good job and then invest your money in real estate, right? You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of the opposite, you know, invest your money in the stock market and, you know, Wall Street, all that typical stuff. So, what were some of your reservations you initially had with investing in syndications through other partners? So if you had told me, let's say in 2009, when I was first getting started, right? And said, well, why don't you do syndications? Why don't you go invest in apartments? I would have said, well, you know, hit me back when I have $50 million. I'll let you know, you know, like I just didn't think that'd be a reality for me. And, you know, this is what I always tell people too. you know, syndications are for everyone. A lot of them too, you need to be an accredited investor, you know, high net worth, you know, high income, whatever. There's a technical definition. I won't get into that. Right. But, but basically, syndications may not make sense for you until you have enough to invest in them, right? So I always use that example. You know, if you have $10,000, right, that's your whole net worth or investable income. Well, you don't want to put that in something passive that pays, you know, 8% a year or something. Right. Right? That's not going to be motivational, you know, to get 30 bucks a month cash flow. That's just not it's not motivating. Yeah, right. So just wait, you know, focus on other strategies and your income and your career and do whatever you got to do to get, you know, several hundred thousand. Now start looking at, you know, what if you invested that passively? What would that mean? At the point where you've got a thousand or 2000 a month coming in without you having to work, that can be a game changer for a lot of people. Well, let's talk about the term passive because when I got into real estate investing, I thought my single family house and my duplex are going to be passive, right? Mailbox money. And then mm-hmm. you slowly realize, well, you've got vacancies, you've got tenants, you've got a property manager if you do have one that you still have to manage. So the term passive slowly goes away in that world. In your world, it's no different, right? You're not as passive as it may sound. Like we asked you earlier, you know, you spend a lot of your time, 80% of your time vetting mm-hmm. deal sponsors, mm-hmm. you know, looking for deals, mm-hmm. looking for opportunities. So Talk about, you know, that term passive and then how it kind of comes out in your world, I guess. So the difference is I don't work in the business of real estate, right? As you alluded to, managing tenants and going out and scouting out, you know, properties and doing drive-by stuff and all that. I spend all of my time now, I'm on like everybody's email list for deals. (laughs) And so I just get flooded with deals from everybody in the US, basically. So my process is, you know, defining my criteria. What is it that I'm actually looking for and why? Understanding that, okay? 
and then sorting through all this. Like it's just a constant filter. It's like, oh, I just got sent a new opportunity. Oh, it's a new development in, you know, Phoenix. Uh, no, not my market, not my asset type, right? Pass. Mm-hmm. And then once a deal does resonate, like, oh, this one seems good, right? Like B class, multifamily, value add, monthly distribution, whatever the criteria may be at that time. Then I go deeper and deeper and deeper. I'll meet with the sponsors. You know, I'll do my due diligence on them. I'll probably go visit the property if possible, you know, these kinds of things. And then make an informed decision from that point to invest or not. But you can spend as much time as you want on this stuff. You don't have to make it full time like I do. I mean, you could just, you know, put all those in a file folder and then Saturday morning from (laughs) eight to 10, go through them. You know, you can be like that. But I just choose to spend my time doing networking events, conferences and meeting with, you know, different sponsors. Yeah, yeah, that's we should have brought that up or I should have brought that up rather. That's how you and I actually met is yeah. at a recent conference in Houston, right? So uh, yeah. that's another great way to put yourself out there, make connections and kind of grow in the space. So talk about how that's attributed to your benefit in the real estate investing world. I love networking opportunities. I love local real estate meetup groups. I love nationwide conferences like the one that we met at and going to the best ever conference this month. So to me, it's surrounding yourself with all the key players, right? I mean, this is your best way to network. It's the way to find deals. It's the way to help others. It's the way to partner in ways you never thought possible, like being on someone's podcast. Yeah, you know, right. To speak this out. I mean, you know, it's just how you find people and it's how you network. So I learned this through, I wasn't always a huge self-education advocate until I saw things really pieced together. For example, I would read a book, I would go apply the knowledge, and then I would get an outcome. And as it was like, boom, you know, I paid $10 for that book and I just made $20,000. That's when it started to click. I was like, man, the self-education stuff, it's real, you know? And so then I just, I went further and further and further. There was, in 2015, I made a goal to read 52 books in one year and I did it. So it was a book a week. That was my goal. Yeah, that's great. That was a little extreme. I can't pull that off anymore. But <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I just that was like when it really started cranking for me on the value behind that. Yeah, sure. Well, going back to something you mentioned a second ago, that was the criteria, your investment criteria, mm-hmm. setting those and then filtering deals as they come across your plate, yeah. right? Because you might get a raw land deal from South Texas or a new development <laughs> yeah. deal in Philadelphia or a class C yeah. asset over here, class A asset over there. Talk about how you figured out what you want to invest in, your criteria and that thing. Yeah. So obviously, this is very specific to each individual. So it's so important to define what you're looking for. And this takes education. It does take some time. You've got to do some research. But things I focus on from a very high level are recession-resistant asset classes. Okay. I believe that we're going to go into a recession. I mean, maybe that's tomorrow. Maybe it's in five years. I don't know. But we're going to. So I'm more inclined to invest in things that historically do better or outperform in general in a downturn, right? And they do good in a good market as well. So I've decided B and C class, which is like affordable workforce housing, if you will, right? Rents in the $800,000, $900,000 range, that kind of stuff. Most people in America can afford those types of rents. I don't invest a lot, actually at all, in A class, new development speculative, you know, five years from now, we hope it's going to be worth that much money. There's no cash flow between now and then. You got to remember too, cash flow is my income. 
So another piece of my criteria, it's got a cash flow, right? I'm yeah. very cash flow focused. More specifically, I like things that distribute monthly cash flow, uh, just the frequency, right? I mean, if you're going to get paid, it's like you want to get paid once a month or once a quarter. So most people do quarterly, that's fine. But, and we've got several, my wife and I in our portfolio like that. But so yeah, I look for a B and C class value add, you're improving something, you know, with maybe a five-year hold on average in growing markets where people are migrating to, where jobs are coming to, where companies are re-headquartering, stuff like that, you know. So I do a lot of macro level research and then I let sponsors fill me in on the very specific submarkets they're buying properties in. I just kind of take that knowledge for what it is when they present it. Yeah, sure. Those demographic and economic drivers are so important when looking at a new opportunity or a new deal. That's really been something I've enjoyed looking at and analyzing lately are those different economic and demographic trends. Not Mm -hmm. super my background, but it's fun to look at. Now, when you're looking at different deals, you're able to kind of diversify across different markets to, you know, go capture, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe a piece of that Dallas market or that Houston market Mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. Talk about the benefits of being able to do that easily in in the syndication world. So yeah, it's the same philosophy, same concept as like the stock market, right? Like don't put all your net worth into, you know, one stock, right? I mean, it's just simple like 101 diversification. So I diversify among different sponsor groups, different geographic locations, different asset class, you know, all that kind of stuff. I believe personally, you can be fully diversified in real estate, which could mean a lot of different things, you know, with your entire portfolio, which, you know, mine's about 80%, you know, real estate, 20% kind of alternative stuff. But yeah, I think that's a common misconception is like, you know, my stockbroker said I should only have 20% real estate in my portfolio. Well, you know, (laughs) with more education, you can see that it's possible to have a whole lot more than that. And, you know, when you get to know all the benefits of real estate and the tax advantages and all the stuff and the leverage, it just, to me, it far exceeds a lot of options available in the stock market. So Yeah, sure. Well, having the experience you now have, Travis, after investing in single families to doing short-term rentals and now multifamily, maybe compare and contrast those asset classes. What have you seen that you like in each? What have you seen that are kind of cons in each? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the biggest things that's obviously my story is, do you want to be more active or passive? Now, there's nothing wrong with being active. I've got a friend who's total handyman, he loves working on homes, can do anything and everything. You know what I'm saying? And for him, it's like, dude, like fix and flips is your game, you know? Like yeah. he, he can do it so cheap and to such quality, you know? And he's got all the connections in the world to get free tile and free insulation, all this stuff. So it's like, maybe for him, that's a better strategy. But for me, who doesn't even own a tool belt, uh, you know, I'm having to contract everything out. I'm having to pay exorbitant prices if you can even find a contractor these days to do the work. And at the end of the day, that's cutting all your margins down to the point where it's like, man, why did I just spend, you know, four months of my time to make 20K? I could have made that passively just investing in a syndication. So first and foremost, that's it. Pros and cons. Something, I mean, you could go, I could talk hours on this, but here's one big thing. With single family, the value of your property is based off of comps, comparable sales, right? So when you talk about downturns and people losing homes and foreclosures and short sales, that's going to hurt the value of your single family home. Even if it's been rented and even if it's a great property and even if it's new and even if, you know, all these great things, right? Sure. At the end of the day, it's not your decision, right? It's comps and that's the decision. 
with uh, multifamily, something I fell in love with is the concept of their value is primarily based off the net operating income. So that's what the property is actually producing, right? When you have all the rents collected and income rolling in, and it's a million bucks a year, it sells at a multiple of that million bucks a year, that net operating income. And historically speaking, in recessions, occupancy dips very little in the B and C class. On average, you know, you might go from 95% occupied to 89. So your net operating income is still going to stay relatively strong. The value is going to maintain relative. So you just don't lose as much. And it's more operating like a business would, where some businesses sold for oodles of money in the downturn, right? Just because they were spitting off a lot of cash flow. So. Yeah, sure. Well, let's talk about if somebody is interested in investing in syndications, what's something they should look for in a possible partner deal sponsor? Yeah. Yeah. So when I first got started, I did it totally the wrong way. So never do this. But (laughs) I, (laughs) people started sending me deals immediately, right? So I'm putting all my emphasis on the deal. And I'm like, "Mm, okay, this one, you know, says 10% a year. This one says 8% a year. So I'm going to go with 10% a year, right? Because that's a higher return without factoring in who's behind the scenes. Who's actually executing that deal? What's their track record? Who is that team? You know, have they done this before? I was not putting near enough emphasis on the team. So I've learned through trial and error that it's all about the team. It's all about track record experience. Have they done it before? I like consistency of business model, meaning they're doing the same type of thing over and over. They're not doing a little development and a little mobile home park and a little self-storage because you can't be an expert in everything, right? Yeah. So I just like groups that focus you know, on the same business plan. And yeah, I mean, it all comes down to their execution. There's your risk, right? Your risk is, are they going to pull this off? Are they not? So you're vetting them out, right? So focus on the team first, maybe the market second. I mean, you can invest in a great brand new built, you know, asset in Ada, Oklahoma, but is Ada, Oklahoma really growing or are they shrinking? You know, like if it's a bad market, there's not a lot of upside to that deal. And then I would look at the deal kind of last, right? If you've checked all the boxes so far, they're going to be doing a solid deal, you know, and they're going to be able to prove with their track record. They know what they're doing and why they're doing it. So I still do all my due diligence on the deal, but that's kind of last priority. Yeah, that's interesting to see how you kind of vet the deal sponsor. That's the most important piece of the equation, right? Now, getting down to the deal, what are some things you kind of see normal returns in terms of cash Mm -hmm. on cash, IRR, hold periods, Mm -hmm. business models, whether you hold the asset for 10 plus years or refinance? What are things you like to see? And then what are some common things you're seeing in the industry? Yeah. So common is kind of a five-year hold value add plan in the BNC you know, area. A lot of people are chasing Texas. A lot of people are chasing Florida, Georgia, Arizona. I mean, there's a lot of markets. Then there's markets that are kind of bleeding out you know, a lot of interest like California. You know, they're having a really hard time. It's hard to cash flow out there. There's a lot of you know, laws and regulations kind of going against you know, the syndication world and rent control and all that kind of stuff. At the end of the day, it's knowing your criteria for me. I am cash flow focused. So I'm looking for a strong cash flow and I'm looking for like a sensitivity test or a stress test, some people call it, as to what might happen in a downturn and what might that cash flow look like. And I'm basing primarily my decisions off the cash flow itself, not so much the five years from now, we hope there's this much equity in the deal. That may or may not be there. That's just, a. I mean, it's like, who has the crystal ball, right? What's our economy look like in five years? Nobody knows. 
But historically speaking, you can look back and see the trailing trends of the collected rents and cash flow and occupancy on an older property built in the 80s and 90s. So I feel a lot more comfort in that saying, hey, man, for the last you know, 30 years, this thing's been at 90% occupancy. I feel better about that metric than predicting the future. So yeah, yeah. I like looking at that worst case scenario, right? Yes. Like, hey, if you know our property is only 50% occupied, 50% vacant, what does the cash flow look like? Is there any? Am I gonna have to infuse cash into this deal every month or is it you know still gonna be cash flowing? Yeah. Because that's a really important factor to you at that point. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Awesome. Well, Travis, hey, it's been a lot of fun kind of talking about your journey from investing in that very first condo to now scaling and being a full-time passive investor. Let's go ahead and wrap up with this lightning round. Just a series of questions we like to fire at you. You ready for it? Sure. Let's go. All right. Cool. Cool. All right. The first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what'd you do to overcome that? Got to go with fear, man. Everybody's got fear. I had maybe more than most. And in the very beginning, I was taking pretty much 100% of my net worth And I was gambling that into one deal for the first time, not sure what the outcome was going to be on it. And so, you know, you overcome that just by, you know, reasonably getting out there and just executing, just trying it, right? Getting a foot in the door. And once you see the results, it's, oh, and that'll inspire you to do your second and your third and your fourth and and just keep building confidence. But man, it was scary buying my first property for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, Travis, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? I would say self-education. We've talked about it on a few different points, but man, like reading, listening to an audio book, listening to a podcast, you know, whatever it is for you, whether you're audio, visual, hands-on, just self-education is paramount, especially in the world of investing. You've got to keep up with stuff and trends. Yeah. It's probably the most important. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. Well, Travis, do you have an online resource you find valuable in your day-to-day? So I do. Any listener can go download a free passive investor guide. It's at uh, ashcroftcapital.com forward slash passive investor. What that is, it's a PDF. It's uh, 20 pages. It's all this terminology and how to vet sponsors and markets and deals, everything that we've been talking about and a whole lot more. Absolutely free. So ashcroftcapital.com forward slash passive investor. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. We'll link that in the show notes. Cool. Well, Travis, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why? Ooh, I have to give two books for two reasons. <laughs> okay. Uh, for anyone like first getting started, wrapping your head around this whole world of financial independence and cash flow and how am I going to retire and all this kind of stuff, there's a book called Choose Fi. And it came out, I think, last year, 2019. And it's on Audible and Amazon, all that kind of stuff. And that really paints the picture of like, literally how to do this stuff, kind of step-by-steps and common practices and you know the 4% rule versus other methods of investing. They do cover real estate. So that's a great book for people getting started. More sophisticated, maybe a little more down the road as you progress. Uh, Tax-Free Wealth by Tom Wheelwright is a oh, great yeah. book. Uh, heck of a book. That book alone, that was one of those examples, $10 book or whatever, saved me tens of thousands of dollars, you know, just implementing some of the legal tax strategies that are available to you as a business owner and as an investor. Yeah, I completely agree. Tom Wilwright, really, really phenomenal CPA. That book's great. We'll link both of those in the show notes if our audience members want to pick those up. Last question in the lightning round, Travis, if you were to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, 
what would it be? Oh man, that's funny because I was 20 when I got started in real estate. <laughs> so wow, talking to that guy. Um, <laughs> you know, again, man, I just can't say it enough. Self-education. I would have said, Travis, buy your first property, get in the door, but then stop and start reading and start educating and join a real estate meetup group and listen to podcasts and expand your mind first and then step in and then start, you know, clearly defining your goals and going after, you know, what you're focused on, not just putting your head and hands everywhere and just trying to figure it out because it ended up being crazy and I burned myself out. Yeah, really good advice. Definitely agree. Buy that first deal, really focus on that self-education piece, you know, couple that with action. Yeah, I think that's great, great advice. Well, Travis, you know, now that you've reached financial independence, you've got your niche, you're established as a passive investor in multifamily syndications. What's next for you? What's the future look like? So my wife and I love to travel. You know, right now she still works in a great work environment through an airline and she truly genuinely loves what she does. So she does not have any desire to give that up or quit right now, though she could if she wants to. So basically... (laughs) We travel as much as we can internationally and domestically year to year, but we're limited kind of to her schedule and vacation time and whatnot. In the future, I see us traveling a whole lot more, probably worldwide travel, possibly even living in you know other places, kind of the geo-arbitrage situation, live in Bali for a while or something like that. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Travis, hey, it's been a fun conversation. If anybody wants to learn more about this world that you're involved in or you know, connect with you, learn more about what you're doing. Where's the best place for them to do so? Yeah, seriously, anybody listening, reach out for anything related to anything that we've talked about, whether or not it's syndications or it's house hacking or it's fix and flips. If I've done it and I can add value, I will. The best way to reach me is email travis at ashcroftcapital.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, Bigger Pockets, Facebook, Instagram. So reach out and I'd be happy to connect and uh, share with you what I can to add value. Yeah, great. Thanks. We'll link all your contact information in the show notes if our audience members want to connect with you. Travis, any parting piece of advice you'd like to leave with the audience members? So there's a quote. I'm probably going to butcher it up. And unfortunately, I don't even know who said this quote, but I love it (laughs) and I live to it. So it's basically like to the extent of, you know, live your life for a few years like most people won't so that you can enjoy life to the extent that most people can't. You know, sacrifice a little up front. That's the whole thing behind the FIRE movement and FI is maybe you do have to live below your means for a little while or sacrifice a few luxuries early on to stockpile everything you can into investing. And then as that compounds and grows, you will quickly find that you have a lot more choices in your life than most people will ever have. Awesome. I love it. Well, Travis, hey, thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun having you on the podcast. Look forward to having you back on in the future. Thanks, Jacob. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. You too. All right. That wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Travis Watts. Hey, I hope you got so much value from that conversation. It's interesting to see how one can be a bit more passive as a real estate investor, investing passively in apartment syndications, among many other different asset classes. Now, if this is something you're interested in, you can go over to that free resource that Travis mentioned at www.ashcroftcapital.com forward slash passive investor to learn more. As always, for more information, resources, and to connect with me, 
you can do so at www.jacobairs.com. Till next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively. 